using willpower, you know, if we're Mr. Spock, great, you know, <laughs> where we don't have emotions. But I don't know any Vulcans that live on Earth, so no. you know, not not so not such a viable option either. Especially because that's the part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed. So, so if we can understand those pieces, we can see why willpower isn't necessarily the best way to go. So, what is the best way to go? You know, this is where my labs my lab's been studying you know habit change, habit formation for decades, and it's really interesting to look at the most you know, where are all the pieces pointing in the same place? And the most evolutionarily conserved learning process and the strongest part of our brain is this reward-based learning system. On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and I'm so excited. Welcome back, Dr. Jeb Brewer, again today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming back. And we always have such enjoyable and informative conversations. I always feel a little bit smarter, a few degrees after talking to you. So I have some interesting questions for you regarding willpower and some other things. So for example, I have a patient who is really stressed at work and she is really trying to eat well and she's always been told you know you have to rely on willpower you can do it substitute or you know remove your triggers for your your desires to eat this habit but she may do really well one day but then one day like let's say she gets her stressful email or something really not good is happening and there's always donuts and cookies apparently <laughs> at her office like every american office and she'll break down but then when she goes home, she keeps a, you know, I always, I always coach my patients to make home a safe zone so you don't have to wear yourself out trying to mm -hmm. fight these urges. Um, and she does okay. But even then, at sometimes she'll break down and go, you know, well, the corner drugstore is just down the street and I'll just go get what I want anyway. And I just say, screw it. So obviously willpower is not so much of a great deal. Can you explain willpower and what we're supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, so let's start with Let's start with willpower itself. So it, if it exists, uh, it's thought to be, you know, a part of a function of the prefrontal cortex. And it's, you know, the prefrontal cortex is, you know, part of the thinking and planning part of the brain. It's also involved in cognitive control, yet it's also the uh, newest part of the brain. So it's the first that goes offline when we get stressed. So it sounds like with your patient, you know, stress is a typical way to make that prefrontal cortex go offline. So it's not surprising that when she gets stressed, she struggles. Another aspect of that that you mentioned was that there's some studies showing that the, uh, the best quote unquote willpower is people setting up their environment so that they're not tempted. So you're even describing her doing some of that, which is, you know, is generally helpful, but you're also describing the big um, place where it breaks down, which is, you know, when people know, well, I could just get in the car and go, you know, this is just like, um, you know, my addiction clinic, when somebody has problems with alcohol, they don't keep alcohol in the house, but they have car keys. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there are liquor stores everywhere, grocery stores or whatever. So we can't, you know, it, it, it's nice when it works, but it doesn't work when we're just really motivated, when our brain says, I don't care if you have to drive 20 miles, you're gonna do it. It's amazing mm -hmm. what people will go through. 
I've had patients who would smoke in the middle of winter when it was freezing, you know, outside. They go through all, all sorts of links because their brain says, I don't care how tough this is on you, we're going to get my fix, whether it's nicotine or alcohol mm. or sugar. So this is this sounds very familiar and and it's interesting that she's kind of highlighting a lot of these aspects. So, you know, setting up our environment so that we're temptation free, helpful but not foolproof. Using willpower, you know, if we're Mr. Spock, great, you know, <laughs> where we don't have emotions. But I don't know any Vulcans that live on Earth, so no. you know, not not so not such a viable option either especially because that's the part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed. So, so if we can understand those pieces, we can see why willpower isn't necessarily the best way to go. So what is the best way to go? You know, this is where my lab's, my lab's been studying, you know, habit change, habit formation for decades. And it's really interesting to look at the most, you know, where are all the pieces pointing in the same place? And the most evolutionarily conserved learning process and the strongest part of our brain is this reward-based learning system. And, okay. and we've talked about this, the reward-based learning on your, on your podcast before, so I won't go into the details. But just as a reminder to folks, it's so simple. It only has three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. And that importantly, it's that reward that drives future behavior. So it's not the behavior. Because if we had willpower, we could just say, stop eating X, and we would stop. And then mm -hmm. you and I wouldn't have this conversation because we wouldn't have anything to talk about. We'd just, just be talking about how great our patients were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so if reward drives behavior, because that reward says, do it again, do it again, do it again, we get stuck in those loops. Why not hack that system and use that, that, the power of reinforcement learning and kind of use that to subvert the dominant paradigm, if you want to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. So that's where we got really interested and said, could we hack the system? Can we actually hack the system? And we looked at reward value specifically. And so reward value is stored in a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex. Not that that's important, but for, for people, people that like to geek out about it, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> and the orbitofrontal cortex seems to store a hierarchy of reward values. So for example, tell me if your hierarchy is set up similar to mine. Broccoli, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, 70%, 85%, 85% with sea salt, add some almonds in there, you know, something like that. It gets a little fuzzy up here. It gets a little or more um, more Vegan nuanced. Mint, the the mint chocolate oh, cookies yeah. from the little girl. <laughs> like girls yeah. I'm just yeah. saying. <laughs> so the nice thing about that hierarchy is when given two choices, our brain, we don't have to go back and relearn which one is more rewarding. Our brain just remembers which it likes more and then we just do it. Now that's really important because it keeps our brain's uh, kind of random access memory. It keeps its working memory free to learn new things. So we can just say, oh, chocolate, I'll, I'll eat that over broccoli or whatever. So that's one aspect is this reward hierarchy. The other aspect of reward hierarchy that, that's important to know is that these reward values get set up as composite values, as a, a kind of a, a mushing a bunch of values together. So for example, let's say a cake, right? When we eat cake when we're a kid and we're at a birthday party, it's not just the, 
the caloric density and you know the sugar and fat content of the cake that sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says hey this is you know this is going to help you survive mm -hmm. but we start to link that with friends with presence you know with having a good time and all of that so we store this whole composite reward value that gets chunked in our brain that just says cake good as compared to well you had a good time you got this present you know the party was you know blah 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 all of that just kind of the details go away so i think of it as set and forget mm. you set the reward value and you forget about the details okay mm. on top of that that gets reinforced every party you go to so mm. if you go to a bunch of birthday parties between you know ages of x and y you're laying down that reward value of cake so that it's really really strong so that by the time we're you know adults and we're trying not to eat cake our brain says oh, this is a no-brainer i already know the reward value of this just eat it mm. so we're really fighting against that our willpower is really fighting against something that has been reinforced over and over and over and every time we eat cake after after dinner you know after a nice dinner that gets reinforced you know so it's like it, it keeps getting reinforced mm. so it's set up that way so that we can you know we can learn other things the problem is that you know we can't you know we could probably subsist on cake for breakfast lunch and dinner when we were five because we're out running around and burning off that uh, burning off those calories not so much in middle age or whatever mm -hmm. you know it, it's it's a different story then so that's right. when we started to run into trouble and we think oh i shouldn't you know i shouldn't be doing this yet uh, we can't stop so how can we actually hack the system the way to hack the system is to update the reward value. How do we update the reward value? One simple ingredient, it's awareness. So you have to be aware when you're doing a behavior to see is this really, really, um, how rewarding is this, I should say. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, we have this app called Eat Right Now where we built in this craving tool. And the first thing we have them do is when they have a craving to eat a food, we have them open the tool and then imagine eating the food, right? And okay, what's it smell like? What's it taste like? What's it feel like in your stomach? And what that does is it kind of brings together the composite reward value plus their current physiologic status, right? If they're really hungry, that reward value, that craving is gonna read out as even higher uh, and if they're not disenchanted, you know, if they're like, yeah, this is a good thing, then they're going to say, yeah, I want to eat more. So the readout for that is we ask them, how much are you craving now compared to before you did this exercise? Mm -hmm. So that helps us establish kind of a current reward value um, brought together with their current physiology. Then we say, go ahead and eat the cake or whatever the food is. But we have them eat it mindfully. Mm -hmm. And this is really important. Um, so we have them pay attention. And if they eat the same, you know, if they, if they're, typically overeating a certain type of food, we say, go ahead and eat it, overeat it, but pay attention as you do it and pay attention to the results. And we ask them, how content do you feel now afterwards? Mm -hmm. And generally when somebody overeats, especially when they're not hungry, they don't feel good. Like their stomach doesn't feel good. They feel guilty about doing it. Maybe they get that sugar rush, whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's really important to line that up right there and say, look, this wasn't that rewarding. So all that takes is awareness. As they do that, that starts to establish a new baseline reward value because it drops if it's not that rewarding. Mm. And we found, we just did a study uh, in my lab where we found that it only takes 10 to 12 times for people to use this exercise to see a significant drop off 
in that reward value. And that actually predicts uh, e eating behavior. So we can see how this works. There's, there are these mathematical models called Rescorla-Wagner modeling and all this stuff that the, the details are not that important for today. But there's actually a lot of mathematical modeling showing how this links up to brain activity and dopamine firing and all of this other stuff. So it's really neat to be able to see this play out behaviorally in real life, even just testing it kind of in the moment in, in an app. Hmm. That's brilliant. Okay, so someone just becoming aware of the situation that gives them the opportunity to decrease the value of the reward, yep. essentially. Mm -hmm. So then what happens when they've done that over a period of time and now they're like, they have that moment of stress and what's going on in the mind? Like, what, what do we do after that? Like, what's going on exactly? So when they have that moment of stress, they might go back into habit mode where they're like, oh, stressed, eat cake. You're right, if mm -hmm. that's our habit. So we have them pull out this tool again and okay. imagine eating it. And if they imagine eating it and the reward values dropped, they actually, it helps them remember, oh, wait a minute, this isn't that great. This isn't gonna fix my stress. Mm -hmm. Eating cake generally doesn't fix stress. It just right. puts it off. Exactly. So that actually helps people click through. So we have go ahead and eat, or we give them a mindfulness exercise that they can use to write it out. So if they go through it and they're less excited to eat then, often they'll just stop there and they're like, eh, you know, I, I wanted some, but I realized it's not going to do anything for me. So I'm not going to eat it. Hmm. Uh, for example, I had a patient um, who actually I was working with uh, for pan panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, but he realized that he was eating as a way to deal with his anxiety. And as soon as he could map out that loop, within two weeks, he lost 14 pounds because he said, oh, I realized that eating didn't fix my anxiety. So I just stopped doing it. So he wow. became very disenchanted with that behavior. And that's, that's what this, this tool, mindfulness training in general is about, is to help people see clearly how rewarding a certain behavior is. And naturally, not using willpower, but naturally through their embodied awareness, be like, meh, this isn't that great. Mm -hmm. So that, that devaluation actually opens the door for what I call the bigger, better offer. Fantastic. So tell <laughs> us what that means exactly. I was just about to ask you that question. <laughs> the BBO. So the BBO is, well, think about it this way. Our brains aren't satisfied because they're always comparing different behaviors. So it's not, it's not going to be okay with just being disenchanted with something. It's still going to say, well, what else you got for me, right? Mm -hmm. So we can be disenchanted with smoking cigarettes. We can be disenchanted with, um, with even with anxiety, which gets reinforced in the same way. We can get disenchanted with eating cake. But our brain says, well, what can I do? Mm. So for example, with cake, the bigger, better offer could simply be stopping when we're full. And basically the bigger, better offer is just whatever that behavior is that is more rewarding. So in one sense, if we eat mindfully and we, you know, I, I teach, I use this, uh, this little game, um, you know, with my patients say, say, ask yourself, how little is enough? You know, mm. like this bite, is that enough? Hmm. This bite, is that enough? Hmm. And so as they start to see the pleasure plateau, they can actually catch themselves and naturally be like, oh, I'm done and stop eating. You know, some people eat a couple of bites of ice cream. I had a guy that reported eating four M&Ms and he was like, I was satisfied after four and it blew my mind. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Not he said, I've never bags, done that four. before. Yeah. Four. 
for. Interesting. So it's almost like you're connecting, you're helping people realize not only the habit and the reward and disenchantments, but they can actually become reconnected what, with what true hunger is, what their body actually yes. is needing or wanting. Yes. So it's almost like they're becoming reconnected the brain to the actual, the body and the needs, which we probably were hundreds of years ago, but not now with the food availability and stuff. But that's really fascinating. That's such a powerful tool because then I think it builds confidence, right? It makes it easier absolutely. to proceed. So when yeah, you say- Yeah, they're absolutely empowered. It empowers people, yes. which, is, which is something that I love when people get empowered. Like you're taking, you're taking ownership of your own health game on. Right. Which is really cool as a physician, right? To be able to give someone- a tool that they'd never thought they could have, right? So this is something they can harness <clears throat> that they never understood that they actually had the power. You're just giving them the knowledge to actually proceed with it. That's fascinating. Yeah, we're so, basically just teaching them how their mind works. And then the only ingredient they need to bring forward is awareness. Awareness within that uh, conceptual framework. And, and it's pretty straightforward from there. Which honestly can also just, because you you were, we talked about curiosity before, is just the, hmm. You know, it's just, it's just literally as simple as that it could be your, I don't know, mantra, I guess, of, hmm, I'm going to enter this with curiosity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love your story. If you maybe you could share with your folks that you went to uh, Colorado Springs, was it the polo team? And you did oh, the, the water hum. polo team. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, the big hum. Yeah. The, uh, the women's Olympic water polo team, uh, when we, went took them on a seven day silent meditation retreat and about day three we did this silent hike up onto a peak and then we kind of broke silence with this mantra of hmm you know and they, they first thought we were crazy and we probably still do to some degree but they all joined in pretty quickly because it was you know demonstrating how joyful it feels just to be curious and so curiosity itself can be that bigger, better offer. We can be curious, hmm, you know, what do I need right now? What am I, what am I looking for that I'm trying to satisfy with food? Mm -hmm. And we can be curious, oh, how much does the food actually fix that or not? And also, in addition to the curiosity, we can start to see how there are other bigger, better offers like self-care. So for example, if we, you know, it's like we're wandering into the into the kitchen late at night and we're like, I want something. And of course our GPS zooms, you know, locks in on the refrigerator. If we get curious, hmm, what do I really need? Oh, maybe I need connection, right? Um, or maybe I need some kindness. And so we can play with, you know, going and, and finding our spouse or our kid and getting a hug or just, you know, talking a little bit or something. And so we can see there that there are lots of bigger, better offers. It's not just curiosity. It's not just, you know, being empowered um, and self-empowered. It's also things like kindness. So if we need connection and we're trying to connect through eating and it's not working so well, we can play with those bigger, better offers. What if I go and practice kindness? What if I go and cuddle with my pet, you know? Mm -hmm. What does that feel like? And does that satisfy my longing and my desire and my need as compared to eating cake or chocolate? So I think also, which is really cool, because it's, which is a perfect solution. 
with your cat. I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm sorry. I couldn't stop. Um, basically, it's almost like you're starting a self-dialogue, right? So that's also empowering because people think that a craving is you're a victim and never can, I wouldn't say control it or just allow it to happen and be okay on the other end of it without mm -hmm. actually doing whatever the craving's telling you to do. But you're learning about yourself and the saying that, wow, there's, there's more to me than just emotions that I must follow. So it's like the self-dialogue is really, um, really helpful in learning about your behaviors and yourself. Mm -hmm. And how's it feel to learn about ourselves? Feels right? pretty good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the nice thing is if you enter it from the, from the realm of curiosity, you tend to lean more towards being kind to yourself. Because I do know a lot of patients who speak very harshly that, that inner dialogue is really mean. Like you would never speak to another human that way, much less. Why would you speak to yourself that way? So mm -hmm. I think that alone can also be um, a habit in a sense of this, how we're talking to ourselves. Um, I had a question though, earlier you were mentioning the cake and, you know, I have three grown kids and none of them have really a sweet tooth or a desire. We didn't do a lot of parties and stuff. So I'm wondering, you know, I'm thinking maybe it's because I was just cheap and busy. <laughs> I didn't think that was probably a big part of it, but I'm curious what does the research say or what would be your suggestions with parents who have small children, but we don't want to lay down these, you know, these habits like this, like how can we start bringing mindfulness into these, these young minds and lives so they don't have to deal with all this as they get older? Hmm. That's a really good question. So one thing I would say is for parents to just understand this process, you know, positive and negative reinforcement. So uh, there's so many folks that realize that they are inadvertently kind of feeding some of these cycles. So, you know, kids get rewarded by getting ice cream um, for doing their chores or for being quiet in church or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to, um, <laughs> to not have those rewards be food. It's not that we can't give our kids ice cream now and then, but don't link it to a behavior. Because right. then it starts to, you know, it starts to become the parent pleasing ice cream habit loop or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's a really simple thing. I, and there are many ways that folks can just take that understanding of the simple concept of reinforcement and just look at how they're interacting with their children mm -hmm. and basically self-diagnose and, and right from there, they'll know what to do. Right. And then they get to start playing with other bigger, better offers like, you know, okay, well, how about a hug? How about some attention? You know, there are so many right. kids that don't get attention these days because their their parents are glued to their phones. Right. So, you know, parent, parents can really check in with themselves and say, you know, I, I want to limit the screen time for my kids. Well, what am I modeling? And by being on my phone all the time, am I uh, depriving my kid of, of attention, of my love? You know, right. I even see this with I feel bad for dogs that I see people walking dogs and they're like, and they're on their phone. Yeah, they're on their phone and their dogs just, it's, their dogs just, they know it. You know, right. it's like the, the dog's like, what about me? <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, yeah, no, I've, I'm like, I don't even know how people can walk a dog with their phone or push a stroller or doing it, but. This is a really tough because though you and I are from a generation where we didn't have the internet until we were like, you know, young adults. And now these kids are growing up, even my kids in their mid twenties, it was less so, I mean, they did some, but you know, it wasn't like it is now. 
So now they're so involved, like the internet and, you know, social connection this way is such a part of the lives. It makes me concerned about when they do raise children, where's their examples? Because their parents were <laughs> glued. And I mean, how do we even begin to, to start a different culture around that? So there I would say, you know, and, and this is a grand social experiment because we're, we're kind of all in, in this without having signed consent forms. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can show them the bigger, better offer of what it's like to truly have a connected conversation and just truly be together, not be in the same space or at the same table, both looking at, at screens, right. but really, truly just, just focusing on one thing, like unitasking, but not as in it's, you know, my task to pay attention, but really just seeing how joyful it is to have a connected conversation you know right i mean i enjoy having conversations with you because it's just really you know it's just really fun to geek out about this stuff <laughs> yeah. what would i what you know it, it my phone doesn't hold a candle to that right so right. there when i can see that clearly again it comes back to awareness when i can right. link up that cause and effect really clearly and see oh i'd much rather have a good conversation with somebody than not right. Then we can start looking and say, okay, you know, when I was on that phone conference call and I was checking my email at the same time, was I able to actually do an effective job at either of those? And, or did I feel depleted? Because we have to ramp up, you know, when we're trying to multitask, our brain is, goes nuts because it's just not good at, at parallel processing. It's a, it's a serial processor. Mm. So it's got to ramp up working memory on one thing ramp it down on another. And then that next moment, it's got to switch and switch and switch. And that's been shown to be terrible for our brains. And we can feel it. You know, we feel exhausted after we get off a conference call and we've been trying to do three things at once. It just doesn't work well, especially when we compare it to what it feels like just to be unitasking. It just feels so much better. Right. So it's almost like a flow, like a conversation, like like a good conversation is like flow when you're working, like you're just you're involved, you're mo- you, like time just passes. Like you, we've all had those really long conversations. You're like, Oh my goodness, I got to get home. It's been four hours. <laughs> um, but it's, it brings you back around to the current situation with the coronavirus and COVID-19. So this is like a daily anxiety thing that we have. And you know, anxiety, you talked about it being a habit in and of itself. Um, what are some of those bigger, better offers that we can use on a daily basis for something that's so uncertain and difficult to deal with? I mean, I know we're going to be out of this and get out of this okay, but mm-hmm. what can we help others? I mean, is it service to others, even though you're far away, like doing things for others? Does that help? I mean, what, what can we do? I think there are a number of bigger, better offers. Uh, one is just, <laughs> well, there's so many. But, you know, when we start to get anxious or freaked out, some simple things like, stopping and taking a couple of deep breaths just to calm our physiology already is you know feels better to be calm than to be freaked out so there's a simple bigger better offer is just to calm ourselves mm-hmm. uh, for those that have even a minute or two to ground themselves in prayer or meditation definitely mm-hmm. a bigger better offer than panicking right mm-hmm. so there are some simple things we can do for ourselves um, to be you know basically to be kind to ourselves there are other bigger, better offers. I don't know about you, but as everybody starts to learn to be in very close quarters with their families for a long time, there are things like, you know, if we're short with our spouse or our kids, we can eat our humble pie and immediately apologize 
as mm -hmm. to our spouse and see what that feels like as compared to kind of letting that stuff build throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So there's a kindness we can do toward others that we can notice. What's it feel like to let that go as compared to, you know, have that build up and build up and build up. Mm -hmm. We can do simple acts of kindness, you know, for the delivery person or for the, you know, the grocery store clerk. Uh, my wife and I just went out to buy groceries. We left the house for like the first time in four days. <laughs> and just to make eye contact and have a conversation with the, uh, with the grocery store person who's out there doing service, mm -hmm. right? You know, they're, um, they're doing a pretty good job of, you know, being pretty clean, but they're mm -hmm. still, you know, they're still out being, ex you know, exposed, exposed to other people. Yeah. So they're just, you know, just simple things like thanking them. Like, thank you for, for doing this. Mm -hmm. um, goes a long way. It feels good to be right. kind. So kindness right. itself is a bigger, better offer. I like the one uh, of where we cuddling pets feels really good. So, you know, I'd love to see people go out and foster puppies or adopt, you know, from shelters they don't carry coronavirus, so, no. and they're in need. So there are lots of, you know, there's another bigger, better offer. So there are many ways that we can practice these bigger, better offers. And it's simply seeing, well, what does it feel like when I'm kind versus mean? What does it feel like when I'm connected versus, you know, uh, disconnected, you know, or unified mm -hmm. versus, you know, not unified? What's mm -hmm. it, you know, so all of those things just really help clarify to our brains, oh, this is the bigger, better offer as compared to this. And then it's just uh, rinse and repeat. I, I like to use in our apps, this phrase, short moments, many times. So you just, that's mm -hmm. how you create a good habit is, or any habit is to you to do something over and over and over throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So the more we practice, whatever those bigger, better offers are, the more they become our new habits. So two things on that, um, one, did you see the clip of my daughter's puppy that she's fostering? No. Okay, that's just really weird. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to send she you is, this. That's really weird. Practicing <laughs> what I, oh, that's awesome. So, no, really, she, she's, uh, she's in medical school, third year, staying at home because they sent the kids home till beginning of April. And she's fostering a puppy. And I thought, wait, did you see that? So no. His oh, name is Oliver. To... I'm sending you that clip as soon as Please. I Please. That's fabulous. Um, it's awesome. So the your other... daughter is doing exactly oh. what we're talking about. She's like the human I wish I would have been at that age. It's been amazing. It's <laughs> been so much an easier life later. <laughs> um, so the other thing is, so I have a lot of friends who are doctors. Obviously, you and I both. And they're in some really tough situations, yeah. right? So they're not only afraid for their own personal safety, but also they're of their family, right? Uh, or other patients, or maybe they're caring for elders in their home and they're coming home and they're potentially exposed to all this and they are really stressed. Mm -hmm. So what can we do with someone who's on the front lines of something that is uncertain and stressful? It's not like you can see your enemy. It's like, oh, my enemy's gonna show up five days later when I'm sick and coughing and who knows who's been exposed. How do we deal with that uncertainty? Is there some way, like, is there a mantra that brings us to a different place in mindfulness or like, what is a, a tool that can be utilized fairly quickly, like even in the middle of something? Yeah, I think, I think probably the simplest, well, there, so there are some simple things we can do, but this really takes practice, especially as, mm -hmm. you know, the more stress somebody gets, the harder it is to kind of calm down. So here, 
taking a couple of deep breaths mm -hmm. can be really helpful to just calm down so that our prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain can come back online. And we can ask ourselves, okay, what am I freaking out about? Well, freaking out doesn't help anything. So we can say, does right. freaking out help anything? And ask ourselves, no, it doesn't. Right. And then we can, that helps us proceed rationally and do what needs to be done, right? right. So if we're a healthcare worker, you know, we're, we're taking the best precautions that we can and we can check in to say, well, does this anxiety actually help anything? It actually can make things worse because stress has been shown to affect the immune system and all of that. So it could weaken our defenses. Right. One thing that we did recently, we, act, we have a paper that's just going into publication uh, right now, literally, awesome. uh, is uh, we did a study with anxious physicians and to see if they could reduce anxiety using our Unwinding Anxiety app. And long story mm -hmm. short, we got a 57% reduction in GAD7 scores. Um, so that just demonstrated that you know, physicians are, are willing to do something like this. They can use an app-based mindfulness training program, which is only 10 minutes a day, and see significant results. Now, that was a pilot study, single arm. So we actually followed that up with the second study of uh, a randomized control trial of people with generalized anxiety disorder. We got a 63% reduction. So mm -hmm. that... Yeah, that effect seems to hold. Okay. Um, so I think for healthcare providers, you know, finding uh, something that can where they can systematically learn how their mind works and then learn to work with it, like you know, like an app-based mindfulness training program, can be mm -hmm. helpful as well. And I think the brilliance of the your programs is that they're one, they're easy to learn, easy to follow, but we're curious as scientists anyway, because you kind of, you know, you're a scientist at heart when you're a physician, that really lends to that learning and curiosity. And then when we just apply it to ourselves and then we get excited to share it with others, which helps us further understand it and see it. But yeah, that's really, really helpful. Very helpful. So excellent. Any last bit of information you'd like to share before we close? No, I think, well, the one thing I'll say is, that I think um, really focusing on how much better it feels, these bigger, better offers around connection and teamwork mm. uh, as compared to trying to go things alone or being the martyr is going to help us all. So I just want to emphasize that. Mm. And hopefully, you know, with things like the coronavirus, uh, you know, we all come out on the other end and it's much better to come out on the other end together and remember that mm -hmm. as compared to coming out on the other end and then going back and fighting with each other and you right. know, getting back into these, these um, <laughs> every, you know, all this divisiveness, which just really doesn't help anything. Not is, the bigger, better offer. <laughs> no, exactly. And I was having those exact same thoughts and I'm always like, you're reading something and people are like, it's this fault or that fault. We didn't do this. I'm like, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to help us solve our current situation. Why don't we use our energy <laughs> for something else? But you don't want to even say that because then you get drawn into it. You're just like, no, keep scrolling. But, you know, it's just that is so very true. So if we can just focus on what we can do at the moment in our current circumstances. And just one thing that I really like that you taught at our the last mindfulness class, I'm doing this thing with you through your folks, is that five-finger breathing. And you yes. said you breathe in going up down breathing out and that's a great thing to teach kids and i've been teaching with my patients that i've been seeing since wednesday and they love it oh, um, awesome. but even it's just been fantastic even if you're you know suturing someone or whatever 
you can imagine doing that to yourself. And it also disconnects you with the tightness. It causes you to breathe. It's in your hand. It's not here, which is great. So, all right. Well, thank you again. Thank <laughs> you.